Welcome to the Let's Scare My Girlfriend to Death podcast. I'm your co-host, Josh. And I'm your co-host, the girlfriend, Cindy. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Let's Scare My Girlfriend to Death podcast, the podcast where we get the views of a virgin and a veteran viewer of horror movies. My name is Cindy. With me as always. Hi. <laughs> That's Josh. What do we? We have started uh, August, which is Josh's month, and he's picked. What have you picked for our monthly theme? I think it's not my birth month. It's just my month. It's his they, month. They gave it to me. They the did. Romans gave it to me after <laughs> Augustus died. Fun fact. Uh, yeah. Um, so we're doing ghost movies this month. We're doing ghost movies that are all essentially the same story told okay. very differently. So you touched on that last week when we did uh, <laughs> Land of the Dead. We wrapped up George Romero month. So tell me more. What do you mean by well, they're just, all the I'm same? I'm going to let you and the viewer figure it out as we go along. Okay. I, I was tempted originally to not even mention that and see if like at some point you're like, these are all the same. <laughs> okay. But, you know. All right, so what are we starting this month off with? What's we our first week? We are watching Guillermo del Toro's 2001 oh, released yeah. The Devil's Backbone. Now, for people who know this, Josh is a huge Guillermo del Toro fact. lookalike <laughs> and fan. Also fact. And fan. Uh, but this is one that I haven't seen yet. If del Toro was not Hispanic and pasty oh, white. And, yeah, and about 20 years younger. I.e. were both bearded and fat. <laughs> And the glasses and the massive love and cinema knowledge and, yeah, uh, political this, views. This movie is one hour and 46 minutes long. Okay. Oh, usually his are pretty long, but okay. Uh, yep. It's directed and co-written by the maestro himself, Guillermo del Toro. It was co-written by Antonio... Oh, I love these episodes because I get to, you get to massacre names. names. Like the... Uh, the episode where I got to say all those Korean names, that was a blast. So the Train movie was, to Busan. Yeah, the movie was co-written by Antonio Tresjores and David Munoz. And it was produced by a legend in Spanish filmmaking, who uh, Pedro Moldovar. Now, like Spain proper? Or like, yeah. Okay. Um, so Del Toro is from Mexico. And I can talk a little bit about his growing up, his childhood and whatnot on the back half of this. But Watch the movie. um, He made his two... Roma. I would say his two most beautiful films uh, in Spain proper, which is this and Pan's Labyrinth. And he considers them to be sibling films. Like, where Pan's Labyrinth is a very feminine film... This one's this very is masculine. the masculine version. Which one of came that first? Story. This came first. Oh, so Pans was two. Oh God, two thousand and like nine, Wait, seven what? or nine years. Like this that. movie, the Jersey, two thousand one. Okay. Oh, yeah. What a bad time to open a movie. Three days before, uh, September eleventh. Damn. This movie premiered. I graduated from college in December two thousand one. And it really meant absolutely nothing. Like, <laughs> those months were as crazy. And I think, I think we're going to reflect on this pandemic. Like, just, it all kind of blurred together. Wait, what year did you graduate? December 2001. Why? From West Virginia Wesleyan College. And then I You graduated walked. college in 2001? Yeah. I graduated from college in December 2001, and That's then here. I walked in May 2002. That's year I graduated high school. I, I graduated <laughs> a semester early because I worked my ass off, and I wanted to move out of my parents' house. That's so weird. We're not that far apart in age yet. Yeah. You graduated. I did not know you graduated college the year I graduated well, high school. Well, because I, like, I walked, like, the ceremony was May 2002, but I had been in the workforce for six months by then. Like, I, I was yep. done. I graduated the spring from high school the spring of 2001 and then I moved to Morgantown briefly and that's where I was living when 9-11 happened okay so that's you were in Morgantown and I was in Buchanan yep good times did your mom (laughs) also call you on 9-11 and say that we're under attack and to stay inside because the terrorists would probably come to Morgantown no because that was high on the priority (laughs) list Morgantown no um I'm trying to think I was in class uh the guy I was dating, we would get engaged and later married and divorced, um, <laughs> was in D.C. 
So most of my memories about that kind of revolve around trying to find him and where he was through all that. It was crazy times. I blacked out September 11th at like three in the morning on mushrooms and a lot of alcohol. So you don't remember. And then I woke up to my mom calling me 700 times to be like, we're under attack. Well, for a while. Stay in the house. Yeah. And I'm like, huh? And the thing is, like, for a minute... I was like, is this real? Or, or am I tripping? Yeah. Or am I still high on mushrooms? <laughs> okay. How did that... How, let's talk about this. How did September 11th affect this movie? <laughs> if, that, if I remember correctly, it September 11th was it. either a Tuesday or a Thursday. It, it must have been a Tuesday. killed it. So this movie came out and then... I remember because I was taking a class. Days after it came out. Like, what do you think happened to a weird... Oh, my God. Spanish-language horror film that was released in America days after, <laughs> days before 9-11? Well, I mean, I just know... It, thinking, <laughs> not even thinking about that. Unfortunately, in America, we've had so many instances of, like, Amy Schumer is forever tied to these two girls that were watching her movie when the gunman in, when in, was in Colorado in a movie theater and killed them. Wait, what? Oh, yeah, like, there, Amy Schumer was in some movie, the one with Goldie Hawn, I think, uh, I, when, and and they were watching that movie when the gunman came in. When I think of movie theater shootings, I think about the Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. Uh, or... Aurora, Colorado, when the kid walked to the theater and started shooting people dressed as the Joker. Yeah. No, this was different. Um, that's what I'm saying. But, and, like, um, Ariana Grande is forever linked to certain people because they were there... At her shooting and... This movie fell completely Completely apart. Okay. So... Like, this was a... Foreign movie in a time when it was only good to be American. It got a... Well, it got a lot of love in Spain and Mexico and other parts of the world. That came out earlier in. And then after September 11th, it wasn't even so much that people were like, fuck that movie, it's not English. Or, you know, uh, it was just like, you remember after 9-11, everything just stopped. Like, we didn't go to the movies. No. Like, yeah, yeah. It was just watching TV 24 7. Wrestling stopped happening. Saturday Night Live stopped happening. The Daily Show. Like, everything just stopped. Howard Stern kept going. We talked about, Mom and yeah. I were talking about that. But, like, what are it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, if it hadn't been for, like, the secondary market of, like, DVD, Blu ray. This movie would be, like. Just forgotten about. Okay. Like, so. Okay, like, we can probably talk about that after I see the movie for, like, we'll talk about more of the time around it. Um, but the... Damn. We talked... I talked a little bit about... now. Pedro Maldivar, and the reason why Pedro Maldivar is so important mm-hmm. is he set the stage for how Del Toro interacts with other filmmakers now. So, in 1994, a young, less-bearded... <laughs> Del Toro was at the Miami International Film Festival with his first film, Kronos, which we'll eventually watch by this podcast. Um, so he shows up, he, sh- he screens this movie. It's this weird film. It, does, it plays so-so, right? Okay. And after the screening, Pedro Almodovar, who is a f- legend in Spain for okay. making things like Falver. He's there's like Spielberg, like something that like it's a name everybody knows. He's like probably familiar with what they look like. David Lynch. Oh, never mind. I'm trying to think of like an app. Like they're John Waters. Okay, like quirky movies and. But okay. they're yeah. But they're right. Like, yeah, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown mm-hmm. is like one of his most famous movies. So he comes up to Del Toro at the Miami International Film Festival and says, "I loved your movie. I want to produce your next thing, whatever it is. No strings attached." And this is it. And that's not what happened. Oh, so. He was like, that sounds great, but I'm already kind of in the works to direct a film for the Weinsteins, Boo Hiss, Boo Hiss. Um, And it turned out to be Mimic, which is his worst movie because they just fucked with him the whole time and he had to fight and fight and fight. And he even said in interviews, like, after Mimic, he was like, I don't even know if I want to make movies anymore. Oh, because it was just so much red tape and involvement and Hollywood. you, You think, this is his third movie. The one that we're going to watch. From 1994 to okay. 2001, he only makes three movies. Now, Val Luton would be very unhappy with that. So it's, <laughs> In that time, he would have made 7,000 In fairly five. rapid succession, he does 
Kronos, then Mimic, and then his career just stops because Mimic was a failure because of studio interference, but they never say, like, oh, it was the Weinsteins. It was, you know, yeah, no, oh, this it's Mexican director this fucked this movie up. Yeah, I gotta have a scapegoat. So he got a hold, and he had written this film um, years before. I think he'd written it in, like, high school, and it was in development for, like, 16 years. He just had, he was like, I'm gonna make this movie, I'm gonna make this movie, I'm gonna make this movie, and he got a hold of a Moldavar and said, I would like to come to Spain, I have this movie I'd like to make, and he was like, that sounds great, but about that time, right, mm. he knew on Cinema called and said, we want you to make Blade 2, which was this way yeah. bigger, oh, way wider reaching film that would pay a lot more. Oh, and yeah. they were like, we want you to come in and do Blade 2 and we'll give you basically give you a carte blanche. Del Toro told them, I believe that I need to make the Devil's Backbone first. To cleanse myself <laughs> of this of horrible, mimic yeah, and fall back in love with making movies. Good for him. If you cannot wait, then for grind me it out. Yeah, to make Blade Two, then don't wait for me. But I can't do Blade Two and then do Devil's Backbone. I have to do Devil's Backbone first. Okay. So Did they wait for him or no? This is the film that reignites his love for making movies, and they did. They waited. They oh, hit cool. the pause button. And I think this is his first real masterpiece. I would say this is probably my second favorite Del Toro movie. Okay. After Pans. So, okay. I don't know anything about this movie. I mean, if we're talking about the time that it came out, my like I said, I had... I mean, it was, the whole world was chaotic for Americans at that time. But then just in my own private life, I don't... I, I don't remember any kind of media you know did, well this movie had no reach this movie was it so i don't know if anything about had it have happened it wasn't exactly gonna like tear it up and make a fortune let's talk about 2001 for a second like because we distill it down to it's the year 9-11 happened but a lot of other shit happened that year okay like what like i graduated high school and you graduated college i did but uh george w bush was sworn in as the 43rd president of the united states mm-hmm uh, the Mir space station. The first time that we ever realized, Pacific. like, oh, wow, this electoral college is such bullshit. Not the first time, but it was the first time in my generation that we were all like, are you kidding me? Wait, yeah. what? So you don't actually have to win an election to win an election. Yeah. Sure. I'm sure that won't come up again. Hmm. Uh, the Mir space station crashes into the South, Pac- South Pacific. Okay. Uh, I remember Taco Bell put a big mat out. A big yeah. target, and if it hit the target, and wasn't it like tacos. a thousand miles away? Like it was nowhere near. I mean, where. it was the entire ocean. <laughs> yeah, like they basically, the Russians thankfully had enough foresight to aim it at the fucking ocean rather than <laughs> now it would have been Washington or something. Um, <laughs> Slobodan is arrested for war crimes. Uh, I did not know this. What? Because in an, in in a in a year full of tragedy, I did not realize this was the thing. But the crown prince Dipendra of Nepal killed his father, the king, his mother, and several other members of the royal family with an assault rifle and then shot himself in the face in what became known as the Nepalese Royal Massacre. Whoa. And his uncle ended up taking over the throne. Whoa. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't either. That's fucking insane. Wow. Um, Aliyah died in an airplane crash that year. Yep. September 11th. Uh, October 7th, we go to war with Afghanistan. And For it was no reason. Real short, and we were out of there yeah, in, we're in a matter out, of weeks. In and out. It's yep. not like we're still there to this day. Yep. Uh, fortunately, that was a that was a quick war. Yeah. Like a gr- Granada thing, I guess. God. Or we're still there. What are we on? Year 20? 19? Uh, I don't know. Uh, October 8th, Bush announces the Department of Homeland Security is formed. That's such a bad idea. Yep. Okay. October twenty sixth, the Patriot Act is signed into law, and in December of that year, Enron files for Chapter Eleven. Oh God, yeah. Two thousand one sucked. (laughs) Two thousand one, so they're twenty twenty. Two thousand one sucked ass. Uh, People that were born that year, I just threw two people out real fast. Billie Eilish. Oh God. The singer that yeah. uh, People seem to really like that I don't listen to, so I can't pass judgment out of the way. Same. Uh, Ty Simpkins, who was the kid from Jurassic World and Iron Man 3. Cool. Was born that year. Yeah. Uh, people that died. Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> don't even get me started. Yep. 
Uh, Joey Ramone, Douglas Adams, oh. Carol O'Connor, Timothy McVeigh was uh, mm-hmm. executed. Uh, executed. Uh, Leah, like we said, George Harrison of the Beatles, mm-hmm. and Victor Wong, one of the stars of one of the greatest films of all time, Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, I'm sorry, bud. Died that year. So, suck my dick, 2001. You were terrible. Terrible, uh, terrible year. 2001 New Words. What we got? Bromance. Okay, and that's from, uh, yeah. In autocorrect. So, Bromance really kind of kicked off from that TV show Scrubs. I loved that show, by the way. But that whole, I never thought about it. something I liked that much. But that idea of, like, uh, Turk and JD being guy Guy love, like that bromance thing. That's kind of cool. Now it's in the OED. Uh, okay, now we talked about the writer, the co-writers, the, I'm sorry, the writer-director, the co-writers, the producer, the importance of that. So quickly, mm-hmm. who's in this thing? Okay. So Marissa Parody. Uh, she plays Carmen. She's in All About My Mother and just a bunch of Omaldivar movies. And she's kind of like a... We'll say she's a big deal in Spain. Like okay. she's an actress of note, of note in there. Spain. Not right. really here, but in Spain, like That's fair. She's big, big deal. Time. Got it. Uh Eduardo Noriega is uh Jacinto. He later went on to do Vantage Point in The Last Dame with Arnold Schwarzenegger in America. Uh and here's a name that Del Toro fans will recognize. Federico Lupi. He plays Dr. Cesaris. Um, he's in Kronos. He's in Pan's Labyrinth. He oh, so is, he's like a Del Toro like yeah. a staple in he's his stuff. He's also kind of the Del Toro stand-in in this movie. He's an older guy. Okay. And it, he in Del Toro's early career, he was one of his main go-to actors. But he's from South America. Um, he's from Argentina. Okay. So he's the outsider in Spain. Okay. Gotcha. Right. All right. Uh, Fernando uh, Tilv is Carlos. He went on to be in Goya's Ghosts. And he's one of the gorillas in Pan's Labyrinth, but we'll talk about that in a second. Because there's also a Nega Garayas, who's uh, Yami. And he's also in Pan's Labyrinth as a gorilla. Because it's rumored that Pan's Labyrinth is like an adjacent sequel to this Well, like movie. you said, they're like sister-brother-sister sister movies. Two of the boys from the, this movie end up being... In the same characters, even though they're never addressed by their names, in Pan's Labyrinth. Okay. So, and this movie takes place during the Spanish Civil War. And that was immediately after. Pan's takes place after. Right. When okay. um, Franco's taken over and it's... And it's uh, a horrible situation like yeah. we're about to have here. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, keep my head up and, and hope for the best. Uh, rounding at the cast is Arena Vasado. Uh, she's Conchita and... Junio Valverde, he's Santi, which I love and have an action figure of. Uh, so, couple bits of trivia before we move along to the movie. Mm. So, I'm actually really excited to watch this. I love this movie so much. Um, like I said, it was 16 years in development to make this film. It was strongly inspired by Del Toro's childhood memories, especially of his uncle, who supposedly, according to Del Toro, came back as a ghost. Okay. Um, he's, okay. this movie is in the Criterion Collection. I have the Criterion Blu-ray as part of a set. Um, it's called The Devil's Backbone and Criterion because they're amazing. Um, finagled the release so it would be re- spine number 666. Oh, that's fun. So, devil spine. Right? Yeah, got it. That's a good time. Um, and going back to the cast for a second, in case you're listening out there. Listeners, yes, this is, as far as I'm aware, um, the only Del Toro film to date that does not have either Ron Perlman or Doug Jones in it. Oh. <laughs> All those movies have one of the two, huh? Yep. Okay. Or, in some cases, both. So, for this part of the podcast, where Josh has made an original poster and I try to discern meaning for what film we're about to watch, uh, I, I bet I've never seen it. Like, there's some of these that it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like, Night of the Living Dead was one of them. Like, okay, like, I've seen that before. I've seen this. I'll show you the original poster. The one in Spanish? Um, and then maybe I'll track down one of my favorite posters and show it to you for the back half. Okay. Um, but the 
tagline is, because it's in Spanish on the poster, is, what is a ghost? All right. Not too keen on the poster. It's very, it's very like, early 90s, late 80s. You know, like, there's a man's face in smoke and red and... Okay, is there a different poster other than that? No, that's all I'm getting. Okay, <laughs> so I'm just going to go with... We know that it's about... It's it's some sort of ghost story. And it takes place during the Spanish Revolution. The Spanish Civil War. Whatever. That's all I got. Do you want to guess? No. I love when you guess because you sometimes write movies that are really interesting and I'd like to see. Um, so... A boy is orphaned and lives in an area of the forest known as the Devil's Backbone, and it's haunted. Okay. I love it. Okay. Am I right? No, but (laughs) you you got one thing right. You got one element right. Okay. Um, But I would like to see the movie you just pitched me. Okay. Which you I'm just call this city's pitch corner. My pitch corner. I love it. Like, there's well, a mountain. I'm the idea and... person. You're the writer. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're going to watch the Criterion Collection, but I bet this is available probably anywhere if it's a Del Toro movie I at mean, this point. I mean, you can rent it. I don't okay. think it's probably not streaming anywhere, but you can probably, I mean, for free. Right. But you can definitely get it off Amazon for a couple bucks. It's worth it. I will say... Not my favorite Del Toro, but goddamn, this movie is beautiful, and it gives me feels. Okay. Well, then, join us, won't you? Yay! Mind the doors. Hey guys, thank you for joining us for the second half of Devil's Backbone, Josh's favorite. Is this one? Is this your favorite Guillermo del Toro movie? Mm, it's probably very close to being my favorite. I think eh, Pans is probably my favorite, followed closely by this. Well, we are. Uh, this is our first week in August, which is Josh's pick uh, for month, and he's chosen ghost stories. And this one. Was definitely a ghost story. Ghost stories that are all the same plot. This was a ghost story, a war. Okay, this one was a ghost story, a war story, a love story, a lost love story, a a buddy movie. Is that a a, a kid buddy movie? It's a gothic (laughs) romance.
It's a gothic romance. Yeah. Uh, it's a gothic. It's a group of kids. <laughs> you know, they take like um, regular everyday movies and they turn them into like horror movie trailers. Like that's a thing. We could do a trailer for Devil's Backbone where it's like played out as like a group of funny kids trying to keep away the bad guys <laughs> with the help of their spiritual friend Santi. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or like uh, Casper the Little Goat, Casper the Friendly Ghost. I just, before we get into this movie, I want to say that I have been dreading having this conversation. Why is that? Because. I know you have a lot to say about this, and after seeing the movie, I can understand why. I really love this movie, and I think it's very important. And I was like trying to even think about how we would cut into talking about this, and it was like an onion. Every time I was like, oh, we need to talk about that, then it led to something else, and it's just so much. Okay, well, we'll try to keep it in our basic <laughs> format, but... but I just, I was afraid. This is one of the few movies we've done where. I, I was afraid of fucking it up, of not being able to adequately describe or talk about why I think this movie is as important as it is. Okay. And I'm going to try really, really hard to not fuck it up, guys. I promise. So Guillermo del Toro does say that this is his favorite, his first movie, and it's probably his favorite. His third film, but he, he calls it his right. first because it's the first film that got all the way through to completion the way he wanted it done. Now, uh, Josh, I know you're a big fan of Guillermo del Toro, and I am too. He's kind of well-known for he does more practical effects than green screen. He does a lot of artwork with his set and his scene design, which I think is really Mm -hmm. nice. I can really appreciate that. He won a Constellation Oscar for a a movie he shouldn't have won it for, but okay. Okay, for what did he win an Oscar for, like Hellboy? He won it for Shape of Water. Oh, that's right. That's right. Hellboy and all. He won Best Director for Shape of Water, which I was a that. good movie, but I think it was them being like, hey, we should have given super him. fucked up and not should have given him this for pants. So uh, here you go. That that seems to be the way the Oscars work. You don't win <laughs> for the movie that's your best film. You, you win, win for, for the movie that they're like years later. They're like, man, we fucked up and should have gave that dude the Oscar for this. So is that how uh... like Martin Scorsese's entire fucking filmography and they're going to give him that, like, what was the remake he did with Jack Nicholson? And people are probably screaming right now. Oh, I, I don't remember. know. But he did a remake of a Korean film with Jack Nicholson, and that's what he won for. Oh. You know, Taxi Driver, Raging not, Bull, like, Goodfellas. But none of that. Not those. <laughs> for a remake he did. Okay, so let me try and recap this plot. Set in the middle of the Spanish Civil War, the movie takes place in a boys' orphanage. Think, like... Um, what is that Shirley Temple movie, Princess or whatever? You know, where during war the children go to these like orphanages while their parents are away. I'm out when you say Shirley Temple. Uh, my knowledge of Shirley Temple. Well, is okay, but about think, as deep as a puddle. <laughs> yeah, think that think that kind of thing. So, it takes place in a boys' orphanage during war, and it is about good versus evil in trying to survive. There is a ghost element. There is, um, there's a lot of layers to this movie, but that that's the central plot. Is trying to survive this essentially two weeks almost during the Spanish Civil War at this boy's home. Fiend. So IMDb has it as after Carlos, a twelve-year-old whose father has died in the Spanish Civil War, arrives at an ominous boys' orphanage. He discovers the school is haunted and has many dark secrets, which he must uncover. So, yeah. We don't know for sure that his father's dead. His tutor says we haven't heard from him in months. I thought they say he's dead. I thought, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, the boy doesn't know. They point out they're not telling him, but, which is fucked up. That's right. Okay. And then the guy who brings him, jumping ahead, is one of the guys that is later captured in front of Casares. Mm hmm. He's killed by the Republicans. I think. Before we get into talking about this movie, okay, if someone is listening to this because they like the sound of our voices, or maybe you're a friend of ours and you're like, I've not watched the movie, but I'm going to listen to them talk about it. There's a lot of spoilers that we're going to get into. Not only that, but let me just say this. So we're on the same page, so we all know what we're talking about. Okay, here I go. So there is a boy's orphanage, right? And the boy that is brought... To the orphanage. Is Carlos. Yeah. 
And the person who runs the orphanage is Carmen, who only has one leg. And she's kind of unofficially assisted by the one of the teachers, reading, Dr. Casares, who is from Argentina. Yeah. And um, Fe- Federico Lupi, who's so actually Argentine in real life. Trying to, like you said, the onion, trying to, or, or parfait, trying to roll back the layers. We have, like, what I said is one of the storylines, but then there's this other hidden one of the adults um, in the movie and what they're going through. For instance, she lost her husband. This was his orphanage, and she was kind of there. Mm-hmm. She lost him and her leg to the war. Then the man that she is kind of stuck with, because it's the only other a real adult man there, is like passionate and beautiful and wonderful and impotent. So they can never kind of be together. And then, I mean, and so there's kind of that story. And then there's the element of as the one of the boys grows up and becomes a man and comes back. Jacinto. Jacinto, um, the role he plays in her life, because now he's, he's an adult. Oh, for sure. And he's but, like the classic, and that's a thing that you Del Toro's done several times, which is the best looking character, the one who the bad would guy. normally be the hero in other films, is the villain. Yeah. Right? Like this guy the, is devilishly handsome. The bad guy in The Shape of Water, Michael he's Shannon. He's like a Spanish Harry Connick in his prime. Yeah, Michael Shannon in. Shape of Water would have been the hero. Yep, but he's not. If that movie would have been made by anyone else or earlier. Like, in the original Creature from the Black Lagoon, the monster is the villain, and the good-looking white guy is the hero, but in Del Toro's movies, it's It's flipped. The monster is usually the hero or misunderstood, and the, quote, traditional good-looking person is the fucking real monster. And that's exactly what we have here, because we find out that the... The place is haunted by, um, I guess it used to be a very grand, big place. And there's an indoor swimming pool kind of in the basement. And it's essentially just, you know, like a dug-in, well-lined pit of water. And we find out that one of the boys, right before the start of the movie, the backstory is that a bomb has fallen into the orphanage and not exploded, a la bed bombs and broomsticks. (laughs) <laughs> and they, and so they're all just kind of living around this bomb, like where the, you know it's in the courtyard. It's in the courtyard, and it's presumed that this one boy got scared and kind of ran off, or he was killed when it landed, or blah 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 blah. Sounty, Sounty, and he's the one who's haunting the little pool um, basement area. And so, of course, you immediately think, good-looking, handsome what, guy so versus ghost. A, you kind of in yeah. your head have your chess pieces lined out and that's not how that goes it sets it up to be um it, we would in english say jamie but jaime i think is how they say it no it's into, uh, Jacinto. no 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 no. the boy the the kind of gang leader boy. oh yeah that's he jamie or he yeah. is with santi when he dies mm-hmm. and we're led at the beginning of the film to believe maybe he did he it. killed him right but you find out that um so essentially because this takes place during the Spanish Civil War, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, Carmen has, she's basically guarding gold that the loyalists, the Republicans, have. And they're coming, we'll take a little bit here and there, to buy weapons and whatnot from the Soviets. And All this is historically yeah. accurate. So Jacinto wants to go off and be an adult away from the orphanage. He hates it. However, he knows she has money. And the only reason he's still there is to get he this money. wants to find... He keeps stealing keys from her because he's found the safe and he keeps trying the keys and he's trying to find the right one so he can steal the gold and take off. Because he, he wants to leave, but he doesn't want to leave poor. He wants to leave everyone else poor. And he, So right. he's the one who actually killed Santi. And then well, he thought he killed him and then he dumps him in the water covered uh, i think he ties mm-hmm. like a chain to it, him. he kind of accidentally like while he's roughing him up the boy falls hits his head and he, he dies and so he ties him up well he's he's still alive yeah he i mean like he, he's he's kind of twitching and and but he's gone and uh unbeknownst to yacinto yami has seen the whole thing mm-hmm. so <clears throat> he kind of stays quiet about it he's a bully anyway so then the buddy movie part happens the kids all kind of work together to band together to figure out what's going on with the adults why is this ghost here and and that the movie kind of follows them and this is the orphanage that carlos comes into 
at the beginning of the film. Now, there is a lot of thematic elements, a lot of stuff. So let's start talking about that. Oh, my God. I have so much. The thing with Guillermo del Toro is that his life being a Mexican um, filmmaker and part of the Latino community, the I don't know what the right word is, the, the Spanish community, the Latin, Latinx community, you know, they're, they've been kind of fraught with various, you know, he, for instance, he's Mexican, but he's very well aware of the Spanish Civil War and the story of it and all that. Um, so basically, the Spanish Civil War is very much like most civil wars um, where you have the military side who want things to be 90 degree angles and black and white well, and good verse, you know what I mean? And then you have the loyalists who, where do I have it flipped? I, let me, give me a second. We'll okay. That. I have that in my notes and I kind of so want to the, talk to you about that. But I think before we even get into what the thematic elements. Well, the whole thing is the difference between the actual people and the ideal. Well, before we even get into that, I think it's important to say that you mentioned that Del Toro considers this his first film. However, it's his third. And this film, feature film, and this film comes off the back of the failure of Mimic, which was made with the Weinsteins. It was a total clusterfuck. And it also comes off the back of his father's kidnapping. (coughs) Yeah, which is a whole thing. His father won the lottery when he was a kid. Like, not an an insane, like, 45 billion. But enough that he was much better than many of the other people in Mexico at that time. He was able to have books, and they had a house and whatnot, but... Del Toro's father was kidnapped and held for 72 days for ransom. In 2000, and, or is it 1999? It was like the late 90s. Or yeah, 90s. like we're not talking about a long time ago. And this is something that happens all the time. Um, so that that is what is informing Del Toro, the human, who had already had the kind of the structure for this movie laid out. As he went into the movie, This he was coming off those two things. And I think those are important life events. That I wanted yeah, to mention think? before we get into them. Now, when we talk about what this movie is and how to break it down and how we talk about it thematically, I found a quote from the film critic Jay Hoberman. He described this film as an experiment in anti-fascist uh, supernaturalism. Ooh. Uh, yeah. And I think this speaks to Del Toro's like recurrent themes in his work. Yeah. So here's a couple themes that I kind of wanted to, I'm going to talk about each one individually, but okay. here are some themes that I've noticed about a lot of his work, especially. So Spanish not just this one, work. but kind of all of them. So there's the ghosts of history or the past. That's one. The freedom of fantasy and imagination. That's two. The importance of self-determination and choice. And finally, the relationship between the real and the imagined. That's fair. So when we talk about Ghost of History, the Spanish Civil War is when this takes place, right? Right. So the Spanish Civil War was from, I think, 36 to 39, right? And it was... Uh, and then it brought in the Francisco Franco for the next 40 years. violent uprising. Yeah. And what happened was Spain voted in a very leftist uh, kind of progressive government. And out of that, you had... So they're the Republicans. They're, the, they're called the Loyalists because they were loyal to the elected government. And once they were in office and started changing things, you had Francisco Franco and a lot of the military rise up. Um, so here's... And they were called the Nationalists. Here's what upsets me. And they me. wanted to... Because the, the Republicans were like, hey, we're going to take away a lot of the power of the Catholic Church... We're going to have a centralized school system. They were kind of trying to move Spain into the 20th century. So here's what we've got. And and draw your own parallels with the United States of America today. So you had a very slow-moving Spain. They had rather tight borders. And they poured most of their money into their military. Because with they had wars with Portugal and with France and, and the Muslims and all that. Like Spain has always kind of had a large military they had to for the because of their location and in the 20s and 30s as the world was starting to modernize quicker and quicker in a free in a free democratic election the people of spain voted in what we would call lefties who wanted to 
demilit like not demilitarized, but take away mo- so much of the budget from the military and spread it out more equally, so that we had more social services. We had public. They were not we. They had public schools, which was not something they had at the time. Um, they would. The, the school system was run by the Catholic Church. It's kind of how they handled the Holy Roman Empire when they tried to take over. So they said, okay, we're going to take education out of Christianity. It's going to be a, a state-run thing. We're going to do public libraries, all those kind of free government services. And they were freely elected, and they were in power for, I think, 18 months before the leaders of the military. I don't think it was 18 months. I don't think, yeah, I mean, I mean, it was like six so the leader, it wasn't the military themselves, it was all those old generals and officers, not enlisted men, the officers who all realized they're not going to get the money and have the power they should have in their mind, what had been theirs for so long, through, they did a coup and tried to take over. And what they weren't expecting was that it, it was a popular vote. Everybody wanted these changes. And so the citizens had been militarized and they fought back. And it, what the military thought would be a quick overthrow of the government turned into a civil war that lasted almost three or four years. It's eerily... I draw your own parallels as you will. similar to, in a lot of ways, to what's going on in America it, right now. It's something that people refer back to when people worry about what happens after no- November, whether the current president, the current administration stays in or not. The Spanish Civil War is always brought up, especially by like libertarians... Um, about you know okay, the you, citizens need to be armed, and this is why. My eye roll at <laughs> I'm just informing. I'm not. You can draw your own parallels, because this is very reminiscent. If I were to back it up, this is pretty much how Marie Antoinette lost her head. Was the people didn't want the old way; they wanted so, to demilitarize. So do, you, do you? Can you recall from history what was the tone and tem like the temperature of Europe? In 1936. Oh, man. Is there anything happening maybe or about to happen? So in 1936, background, I am a teacher. 38, maybe? I'm a language arts teacher, and I have been for many, 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 many years. But uh, my degree is in English literature and political science. So that's why I'm trying to give as unbiased information as possible, because Josh just can't. Uh, In 1936, 1939, same thing. Kind of. Um, so you have in Germany, Germany has only been a country for a little bit, trying to kind of pull together and stay under the way that um, the monarchy, total power, that's how Germany, they wanted, they were trying to stay in well, by accident. By 36, Hitler was already I was going to say by accident that led to Hitler coming to power in 1933. So by 36, he has rolled into, think about where we are today, Donald Trump's in his third year. His poli- um, Hitler's policies and pogroms are starting to become a lot more well-known. Jews are trying to leave um, people who the Nazis deemed as asocial are trying to get out, but they can't. Everybody's kind of like, oh, is Germany bad? Turn a blind eye, I'm going to do my own thing. And you have exactly the same thing kind of happen. Of they want to militarize the Germany, and you have this split between the people and the military. Well, fearing a start of another world war, because everybody just tried Europe, to ignore it. Europe, having come out of World War One, was like, we don't want to ever do that again. Yeah, the war to end all wars. So the reason why Francisco not. Franco eventually won. And had the equipment and the weapons he did was Hitler used the Spanish Civil War as a testing ground for his weapons mm-hmm. that he was making for another idea he had. So he would give a which lot would of become World War Two. That's right. What we know is Iclon B, which was the primary gas used in the crematoriums, were first used in the Spanish Civil War. Tanks and weapons. It was not planes. until in the last few years that I learned. Oh, that's the connection Germany gave to the. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, I just thought it was a popular kind of like DDT around here or something. Yeah. You know, you're talking about. The Republicans, the it's so weird to talk about the Republicans like the good guys, um, because that's where my mind's we're, been at. We're but, not gonna okay. We're <laughs> but there. Um, the Republican, the Spanish Republicans, were buying arms off of the Soviet Union 
right? Right. To fight in the streets. And meanwhile, Francisco Franco's men are getting shipments from Germany. Of, like tanks and mortars right. and shells and everything else from Germany. Meanwhile, if we're talking like, about politically. Hey, I need two things. One, I need to make sure all this shit works. And two, I need to make sure that this door is shut. And I don't have to fucking worry about Spain when yep. the time comes. Exactly, because they're worried about their own thing. It's true. He also did, that's the rise of the dictators, right? He kind of did the same thing. He laid the groundwork for Mussolini. Yeah, and Francisco Franco stayed in power until 1975. Yeah, so for 40 years or 45 years? Two years, I think, two-ish years after he died was their first election since the election. And guess what? Where they voted a bunch of lefties in to try and fix and do public schools and try to, because that's what the people have always wanted. They just weren't allowed, yep. just like with USSR, just like with France, just like with Italy. Yep. I'm going to shut up. And I think when we talk about this and the ghost of history, one of the things we kind of watched when we were looking at this film and what it means is that at the time that he would have been making this movie, there was a big push in Spain to dig up all these mass graves and identify the mm-hmm. people that had just been shot and thrown in them. So like, in America... So Spain was slowly starting to deal with all of the dark past right. of the 36 to 39 Civil War. For instance, that, that it's kind of like where we are right now, and it's taken a lot longer than... Well, maybe. Um, right now we're finally starting to, as America, we can't. we realize we can't heal the injustice of Jim Crow era America, post-Civil War America, until we can identify, like, oh, all these mass slave graves, all these mass lynching graves, all these kind of, like, we're finally starting to identify and talk about those things. That's where Spain was in the dawn of the millennia, right? In 2000, when this movie was written, made. So, okay. We have so, a lot to talk about, guys. We're that's not, the ghost of history. Josh has pages and pages. <laughs> now we talk about... Where do you want to go from here? So this movie has uh, all the key elements. Let's talk about the freedom of fantasy and imagination. Well, hang on. To, to, to connect this back to the movie, the idea is that, you know, as I'm sitting here saying, just like in Germany, just like in France, just like in da-da-da, you know, all this kind of... Well, yeah, all this stuff. You, you take these key elements. There's the... Uh, and so you kind of throw them into this boy's home. So you have this really good-looking, very well-built, charismatic leader who is the worst and the bad guy and is murdering people. But nobody. And then you have the scared people who know, okay, he's murdering people. I need to do what he says. I'm scared of him. In Jamie, you have... I don't think anyone really follows Jacinto through his, like, guile... Yeah, I think every, that's true. People bend to his will out of fear. Like no one's like, which is again, you know. So if we take all these these stereotypes of um, what leads to a civil war or, or an uprising, a revolution, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, what, what, but you know, you take all that and you—that's what's in this movie. Yeah. This movie is all. Every person is like a little chess piece to show you, like, all right, if they do this, this is how this happens. This is how this happens, and. And so on. And it has a darkly happy ending, which we'll get to soon. Uh, well, I will debate that ending, too, because I well, don't think it's that good of an ending. Okay, so the next ending, theme... That so that's the theme of, the, of history. The <laughs> so, other one is... Much like uh, in Pan's Labyrinth, the children's only escape from the real world comes in the form of art, imagination, stories, comic right. books, friendship, imagination. All those things that are typically tamped down and put under a bushel basket mm-hmm. during a dictatorship and that's important santi because i mean i heard once i was john landis wrote a book about the history of monsters and movies and he had everyone kind of decide uh hey what do monsters mean to you you know what do monsters mean to you and i think i think it was joe dante said monsters are metaphors right okay like godzilla is a metaphor for the danger of nuclear power Fair. And, you know what? Yeah. Santi represents a couple things, and I think one of the things he represents is the specter of war. Right? So. Like the ghosts of war he's kind of very thing? real to the children, mm-hmm. but not to the oblivious adults. So like, he's he's so not just. Carmen, in- 
image. Dr. Casares. Yeah. Are living their life and they're like, things are going to get bad, but they're not bad here. And we're kind of just living our lives. And mm-hmm. we want to be left alone. How many people does that sound like? Yeah. They're the, the majority of people who are like, you know, insert this dictator is pretty awful, but it's not. It's not as bad as this. Day. Right. So it could be worse. It, you know, I just let's just make it through the day. And it's not until it comes to them. And it's like in their face in the form of Yacinto when the explosion happens and mm-hmm. the dead children and Dr. Casares realizes, you know, watches Carmen die, that he's like, fuck. Like, we should have known this was happening and been on this before. Right. We should have been ready for right. this. So I think we don't, we're not prepared. One of the things Santi represents is, even though he's in a way stuck in the past, he represents the specter of war well he, and i mean he he warns them right and the i mean he says a lot well yeah. like and you don't realize so the only thing santi really says is many will die or you know many of you will die i think is what he says yeah. and they, like the children and you think like oh my gosh she's gonna kill everybody the children are the only ones that know mm-hmm. yusinto's a piece of shit and he's terrifying like dr casaris doesn't really have a lot of interactions with him he's just kind of like he's the grounds guy whatever uh and carmen's fucking him yep and feels really guilty about it but he's the bad guy. And yep. everyone just kind of is oblivious to it except for the kids who are like, this guy's a they fucking know monster. Like, yeah, they know what's up. He Carlos's face with a knife. He kills He kills Santi. Yami's like fucking terrified of mm-hmm. him. They know. The children know what the adults don't know. And nobody's really paying attention because they're distracted with their own goings on and, and side stories. And it's not until it's too late do they realize. We should have been better prepared. Yeah, we should have fucking killed this guy or like did something different somewhere back along the path yeah thrown him out or something and that brings us to the importance of self-determination okay so every character is given a choice in this film to face the horror of the movie and or the reality of the movie and they either best it or succumb to it right okay give me an example okay so if we're saying the horror is the war or Santi. Santi, okay. Or uh, Yacinto. So for Carmen and Casares, it's facing the reality of the war and realizing too late uh, that they should have left, right? The idea of, like, fighting, 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 fighting for a country that no longer wants you. Yeah. And then by the time you realize... You're fighting for... It's gone. Right. It's right? too late. You're, you're left in a shitty situation and they both die because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, for Yacinto, it's facing the need for acceptance from his friends and the need to be important. And he's equated money with power. And the, and um, at first, he supposedly only wants the money for uh, the farm with Conchita. Right. right. You talk about wanting a farm, but you can't have a farm without money. And then it turns into when he's faced with doing what's right and saving or versus saving face and being a man and masculinity... He chooses to kill Conchita. Right. He chooses the honor of his friendship with those two shitty dudes. He yeah, chooses he, because she being a man, everything that being a quote masculine so, man entails over top of like the love of other people. So you mean like everybody is given at all the main characters are given a choice, like a fork in the road. Mm-hmm. And when they're not okay, gotcha. I'm I'm with you, I'm with you. Yeah, he's he's pretty freaking awful. Before the movie even starts, really, or at the beginning of the movie, Carmen could choose to love Dr. Casares. Even though and, he's and, physically and not able to love her and back. And do what's right. And he can choose, right, to be more forthright with her and be like, I love you, not just read you poetry through the wall, and we have to fucking go. Right. And like, she won't do it. Instead, they drag their feet. Mm-hmm. They think until that... Until it's too late. Yeah. And then with Yacinto, it's this thing of, he's the monster, he's the fascist monster that grew in the vacuum, right? Where he only cares about himself. He, Everybody trusts him because he's one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, if he was an outsider that came in and, and did and acted the way he did, he would be seen immediately. But because he grew up there, they've known him since he was a boy. He, that's just how he is. He's very you temperamental. Could, oh, that's just how he is. You could read Jacinto as a stand-in for toxic masculinity. Well, if you look at... He kills everyone who's ever meant anything to him or whoever loved him 
out of pride and a sense of being a man. Yeah. If we look at... And for money. Yeah. Um, gosh. But mostly pride, right? Like, he wants the gold, well, but it, it's he like after they... What I immediately thought of... Kick him out of the tribe. They kick him out of the orphanage. He comes back to kill them. Right. Like, it's about getting the gold, but at that point, he also wants to kill them for the slight... My thing is, I'm always, I, I see a lot of parallels between when people try to explain away our current administration. Like, yes, he tweets bad things. Yes, he cusses sometimes. Yes, he's on his third marriage. But you know what? He's not like the rest of them. He's one of us. He gets it. Like, do, have you ever heard those arguments? You know, he. Yeah. it's like, no, guys. Oh, he's a Yacinto. <laughs> Please pay attention. Yeah. Uh, and the boys, the, on the other hand, they have to face their fears in the form of Santi, in the form of this. Why is this ghost here? Horror, and what has happened and what will happen. But unlike the teachers or Yacinto, their story is a little more. Their story is a little more positive, in the fact that they band together. Mm-hmm. Now a lot of them die in the explosion caused by. But they Yacinto. work together. They, um, the they, kid who was kind of the bully realizes, yeah, like, okay, we're on the same side here. Because the, stronger together. We're stronger together. And they take Yacinto down like the cavemen did the mammoth in the yeah, oh, yeah. when they're talking about I love it. that. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning, while we're on the subject of Yacinto, he is he's killed by his crimes of the past, right? Santi. And his greed. Right. So, basically, Yacinto's killed by three things. So, he represents fascism Mm -hmm. and toxic masculinity, right? He'll be the stand-in for that. He's killed by a group of boys uniting and saying, no. Yeah, we're not going to, we know what you did. And refusing to be that. And then, his crimes of the past, his killing Santi, after they knock him in the water, Mm -hmm. Santi grabs a hold of him and also the gold his greed so he finally finds the gold he finally finds the gold we won't say where but he finally finds the gold and he um puts it in like a a a hobo bundle what are they called a binti bag or whatever and ties it onto his waist and then he puts them in his pocket because they're just you know these little palm sized bars of gold and he puts them all in his pockets and so then when he's put into i mean gold is heavy and then when he's thrown into it's also soft the water He's, you know, trying to get rid of the gold. And that's when Santi kind of doesn't even drag him down. Like, he just doesn't let him get the gold. And he just sinks to the bottom and dies. He can't get it off of him. Like, he's drugged to the bottom by his own greed. Yep. Which is um, a very, uh, very open metaphor there. And I think this speaks to the relationship between the real and the imagined. Because the specter of violence is real. Just like Santi. But it's not a reality to the adults of the movie. Mm-hmm. Until Dr. Casares comes face to face with it in the village when he sees his people being executed by the uh, nationalists. So that's our third theme. Was that the third, the last part, the last theme? Or was there a fourth one? Uh, well. Oh, I know we're not done. <laughs> I know we're not. I'm just trying to keep us in format. What we got? Uh, that's, I think... That's as far as the, okay, so now a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about real fast, Cindy. Mm-hmm. All of the good characters are missing something and are imperfect, right? Right, so Carmen is missing a leg, Dr. Casares is impotent, the children are young and they're immature. Well, they don't have parents, right? They're also missing parents. Um, the only whole character is Jacinto, but he's unable to love anyone outside of himself. So that's what he's missing. And he's he's what leads to the death of most people. He represents fascism and the idea that of the perfect person running things, right? Like every dictator is the best. One of us leading. Perfect, mm-hmm. right? Like some uh, Kim Jong-un and Kim Il-jong, and they, all, they were considered gods, right? Well, look at, Hitler I mean, just Anglo, like, if we look at Anglo, uh, father, if we look at, you know, Anglo-Saxon history, we have that too. I mean, the the idea of divine, right? The God, the yeah. gods, or the monarchy was chosen by God. They were they're, divine providence. They're considered infallible. Right. Um, and fascism comes from a lack of love and caring and understanding of people different from yourself. That's why it's so important that the children band together and destroy Jacinto along with Santi and because by working together, that's the 
and acknowledging and accepting um, themselves and their differences and their past, our mutual past, mm-hmm. that's how we beat fascism. Right? Yeah. We have that's to correct. band together and we have to accept our common past. Right. Acknowledge this, our flaws for what they are and heal from them rather than just dealing with them, which will eventually kill us. Yeah. And I think another thing I want to talk to you about is every character in this movie is looking for some sort of surrogate family. Right. Casaris is looking for Carmen and Carmen's not there for most of the movie. Carmen is looking for some sort of relationship with the kids that turns super weird. I think she's more looking for more purpose. Like she took on her husband's mantle and it's more like, why am I doing this? Why was I left behind? Why did I? So that's what I kind of see her arc as. But she's like collected all these children that Mm -hmm. she takes care of. Um, the children are looking for parents, and those parents turn into be like Carmen and Casares. Uh, Yacinto is looking for a family, but he finds it in those two guys who come and help him. Mm-hmm. Right? Conchita's looking for a husband and a mate who will take care of her and love her. Everyone's story. Looking take for get those her away from there, sort of a thing. Yeah. And no one gets them. Nope. <laughs> right? So Carmen dies. Uh, Casares dies. Mm-hmm. Conchita's murdered dies. by the guy who supposedly loves her. Yacinto mm-hmm. kills everyone. His friends abandon And eventually him. ends up killing himself in the process. Yeah. So that's why I think every side of the war, the Spanish Civil War, is on display in the orphanage. So Yacinto is, he's the fascist. He's the nationalist, right? He's mm-hmm. the stand-in for Francisco Franco. Um, Carmen and Casares are the well-meaning but totally unprepared out of the water lefties who are like we've read a lot of books and we know what we're talking about but we only have one gun but we're not really ready to throw down and be violent right and the children are the future of spain and at the end of this movie we talked about it right they're the real victims so this movie ends with everyone dead Santi getting all the adults dead. Yeah, well, Santi getting Yacinto's Yacinto dying. All you know, because Doctor Casares is dead. He his ghost, again a ghost being a metaphor, watches these kids go out into a desert, because the orphanage was in the middle of like kind of like a desert, mm-hmm. and they just go out and wander in the desert, and well, that it's a. Day and a half to town. Yeah, but we know, we know what's history ahead. that until like 1975, when these guys are in their 50s and 60s, Francisco Franco is going to run that country like a fucking dictator into the ground. Yeah, and it's not going to be safe, or probably a very happy place for them to live. So they're wandering out into a very dangerous world. So it's this idea of like this hopeful ending of like, oh, the kids are leaving the orphanage behind and moving on. But there's this gothic part of it because if you know history, you know what they're walking into. Okay. So that's, that was my thoughts on this movie. Uh, It was a lot and I'm sure uh, I maybe pissed someone off. In the Um, process. Whatever. I, you know, I'm sorry that, you're apparently pro-fascist. <laughs> anyway, so uh, is there any trivia and cool stuff that people should look for when they look at this movie? Uh, there's a couple things. The art is beautiful. I mostly focused on like what this movie was about. You know, peeling back the onion of this movie. Right. I didn't want to go into a lot into like you know, oh they use this kind of makeup because I just felt like this movie is more than that. After talking about what this movie's about, that would cheapen it to just go into a long thing about you know. Fun little trivia facts. That's fair. But a couple things I wanted to point out. So, um, originally, this movie was going to be set in Mexico. And it was... The Devil's Backbone was about a series of mountains. And it was going to be an orphanage where a Mexican boy is waiting for his father who's taking him to going to take him to America. The land of opportunity. Where the streets are paved with cheese and there are no cats. Yeah. Um... But it was a thing where the, the God, uh, God and the devil made a wager and they would play for the soul of one person every hundred years and it was going to be this kid in the orphanage. It turned into this story. Uh, and in this movie, The Devil's Backbone refers to Spina Bifida. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Spanish comic series, Periculos, Periculos. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, I'm not a Spanish speaker. Uh, it was by Carlos Jimenez. 
uh, it was super influential. It was a comic series set in the 50s in an orphanage in Spain during Franco Spain. And well, this movie's just like that, then. Yeah, the guy who drew that comic series storyboarded this movie for Del Toro. Oh, cool, right? And it's very beautiful. The character of Owl, the little boy that's one of the orphans that has the glasses, is very much based on one of the characters from the comic book. Okay, so people who are familiar with the comic book would get those references. That's pretty cool. That comic was a very important touchstone for this movie and the design and kind of how the characters work. Uh, Santee's design was based on a broken, forgotten porcelain doll, like a children's toy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it played at the Toronto Film Festival on September 10th of 2001. I think we talked about that in the front half, about how that's pretty much why um, nobody's really... It's one of his lesser-known movies, just because of when it came out. And it played on 12 screens, <sighs> it's not 11. Yep. And I think it's important that Del Toro said, this movie is about being stuck in time like an insect stuck in amber like that's what ghosts are there according to the very opening line of this movie what is there a ghost it's a tragedy condemned to repeat itself time and time again so next week are we watching something so heavy do you want to do the we are really running long today um i don't think we have time to kind of get everything done we're already running it probably over an hour and a half for this podcast <laughs> so just for the back half uh, no, we're already at like 45 minutes. Oh, okay. And the front half, yeah. So front half was a good bit too. We'll just cut all this. We don't have to hear people talk about format changes or whatever. But. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this movie. So what are we doing next week? Well, hold on. We need to do, we need to do one thing before we move on. What's up? We didn't talk about it. What did you What did you think about this movie? Did you like it? I did like it. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. It had a lot of sim- You know, I like Guillermo del Toro movies. They have a lot of symbolism, and they're pretty to look at, and they're interesting to watch. This does. This is a movie with subtitles, so be aware of that. This wasn't a movie that Ma could watch, and I don't think the kids would be interested in it. But this is a beautiful movie. Yeah, I love this movie. Um, I think, like you said, we'll skip the Arkoff formula. I think we'll use it cheapens the, it. We'll use the del Toro method. Every time we do a little Torah movie, the four points that I came up with. Okay. Oh, okay. That works. <laughs> That's how we'll judge his movies when we talk about them. So what are we doing next week? August, so, whatever the second week of August is. Oh, God, August. So um, continuing the theme, because again, this is a month of ghost movies that have the same plot but are told very differently. Um, we're going to watch the 1980 film The Changeling. The Changeling? The Changeling. I'm really looking forward to it. Not the Clint Eastwood film starring, uh, what's her name, that came out in the 2000s. I don't know. I wouldn't. Angelina I mean. Jolie. There was a, there was a uh, Clint Eastwood-directed film starring Angelina Jolie called Changeling that came out in like 10 years ago or something like that. This is from 1980 starring George C. Scott. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well... All right. The ch- I'm just trying to think. I, the only thing I can think of when I think of the changeling, I think it's the yearling with the deer, and that's totally no, wrong. That's really sad. <laughs> okay. 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 So, until then. I'm Josh. And I'm Cindy. And I'm still his girlfriend. And I fucking love this movie. <laughs>